chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let me pray for us, and we will take a look through that passage that uh, Abby just read. Let's pray. Father, really, our desire, my desire, is that you would warm our hearts. Always think of those disciples who walked with you, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, and the, the result, the outcome of their walk with you and their conversation that afternoon as they reflected back on it later was, oh, how our hearts burned within us when we walked with him. I pray that you would warm the hearts of my friends and mine as well as we get another chance to just look at you. That you would encourage your people. You would put joy back in our hearts and confidence and hope that even tonight our faith would grow a few inches. That we would leave spiritually taller, stronger than when we came in. Do this because we need it. Do this because you'd love to do this very thing. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I think I'm on pretty safe ground if I made this bet. A bet that pretty much everybody in the room, certainly me included, would say, if God were here with me, I could get through anything. Particularly whatever situations you're in, which is, this is a, a room full of people in a lot of different places, and so for some of you, um, the end of the semester is the thing that you're in right now, grades, getting grades up, keeping scholarships, the anxiety that that produces, that's the thing that you're in, and you're thinking, yeah, if, if God like answered my prayers and came and was actually here with me and I could hear him um, speak to me and I could see him pay attention to me when I prayed, if, if Jesus was here to put his arm around me and embrace me, I could get through any kind of academic stress or relationship stuff that you're in right now, just agonizing ambiguity or conflict that's happening with a roommate, with a boyfriend, with a girlfriend, and you're like, yeah, this is really hard, but if God was here, hmm, easy. Uh, seniors, whether you know what you're doing next or not, because those of you that already have a job offer and a lease in a city still are facing the prospect of making new friends, finding a new community that you're going to grow in, establishing a new relationship, maybe with coworkers or a pastor, and that has a lot of uncertainty, and especially maybe those of you who, like me, when you graduated and walked across the stage, you didn't know what was on the other side of the stage. What am I graduating into? Where am I going to go? And I bet you'd be on board with the idea, too, if God were here and I could see him, if he was within arm's length, I could get through this uncertain season. The depression you feel 
or that you've been in for a long time, the doubts that you've been dealing with, the spiritual dryness that you felt for a long time, the sin struggles that have felt like they're getting worse, not better. If God was here and he was as close to me as the person sitting to your left or your right, I could weather this. I could get through to it. What's interesting is what Abby just read is the real-life account of 12 people who were literally in a boat with God in the flesh. God was arm's length away. He was as close to the person sitting in the row in front of you. They could smell his clothes. He was so close. They could hear him snoring when he was asleep. They could see his reaction to their words. They were with him. They were here in those circumstances with him. And it didn't seem to provide the peace or the confidence or the hope or the perseverance and endurance that we think it would provide if he were really, literally, tangibly here with us. And we could see him eye to eye because they had that encounter with him. And so did hundreds and hundreds of other people. And what Abby read was the result. So how do we make sense of this? Here's my proposal. Here's my idea, my question. Um, Maybe we need a new understanding, a new mental picture of what it looks like for God to be in control. Because things got pretty chaotic and seemingly out of control when he was actually very much in control. (laughs) So I think we need a new definition, a new mental picture of what it would mean for God to be with you in your circumstances right now, under control, in control. Well, let's get into the passage because this is what it looks like for him to be here with us in our situations and under control and in control. But again, like I said, it's different than we expect. Actually, before we get into the passage, let's retranslate this in Carrie Underwood's language. So, if Jesus took the wheel, Jesus then steered the car into oncoming traffic. Or he rode on the shoulder the whole way. Or he kept hitting those little rumple strips on the side. Or he put the car in reverse. So if Jesus were to take the wheel and to be in control, what if your reaction to him taking the wheel or being in control was backseat driving? Hey, you missed the turn like two hours ago. Or we're not even going where I want to go. Why are we going in this direction? What if you think he's a lousy driver? Have you ever entertained the idea that maybe that would be your reaction to Jesus showing up in his power and exerting his control in the situations that you're praying for him to show up and exert his control in? What if you think he's moving too fast and it's scaring you? What if you think he's driving too slow and it's frustrating you because you're late to where you wanted to be in life at this particular moment? (laughs) Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a friend group yet? I'm a junior. You're going so slow. God being in control doesn't always mean that we're going to feel in control. I hope you remember that. God being good, God being present, Him being near, Him being in control of everything doesn't necessarily mean you're going to feel in control in that particular situation. And that's why we need to relearn what it means and what it feels like for Jesus to be near and in control in our lives. We need to retrain the eyes of our faith. 
One reason why is because you'll miss his presence. You'll miss his peace. You'll miss the calm that comes from knowing that God himself is near to you and with you and for you. You'll miss it if you've misdefined what it means for him to be present. The disciples, did they not miss the presence, the physical, tangible presence of God in their midst because they were looking for the wrong thing? They thought it would be different. They thought it would feel different. So Jesus being in control doesn't mean that we'll feel in control. Now, even before the storm shows up in this passage, things start to spin out of control. Um, you got to know a little context in how, you, how Luke is telling the story uh, to pick up on this, but he drops a subtle but really significant hint in verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, it sounds so innocent. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Sounds simple enough. We're like, okay, they're just, maybe he wants to go somewhere on the other side of the lake. Maybe, I don't know why he wants to go there, but where he wanted to go was on the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake was, is modern-day Jordan. And this time it was Gentile territory. It was not home turf for these disciples. It was those people. It was a really uncomfortable place to go. Really uncomfortable place to go. Not a place that they frequented. Not a place that they had a habit of going over to the other side. Really significant statement when Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to what's on the other side of that. That's where the Gentiles lived, the outsiders, the others. It was an unclean place. It was a socially chaotic place. They felt it was a spiritually dirty place. It was super unfamiliar to them. Um, My sister, I've told y'all before, she lives in Kenya. I've been twice for about 10-day visits. And... um, if you've ever traveled abroad or visited a place that's nothing like our culture here, you know what it's like to feel ridiculously out of place, right? Every, like, at least you think everybody sees me. I stand out like a sore thumb. Like, I, don't, I didn't even know how to, like, pay for stuff. I was like, get a Coke, and I'm like, I don't know what these coins mean. Take whatever this costs. And I just shoved, like, a wad of coins across the counter and took back whatever still belonged to me. We went to church the times that I visited over there, and it's about as different as you could possibly get from everything I'm used to in church and worship. And again, I'm like, everybody in this room is staring at me. Who's this guy over there, standing there, deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do? You just feel super out of place, like you're not playing with home field advantage, super self-conscious. Things had already gotten really uncomfortable and out of control for the disciples even when the sun was still shining and there were no storm clouds on the horizon. Such is life with Jesus. It doesn't take crisis to feel out of control when you live with Jesus, when you follow him, when you obey him. You feel like you're losing control long before chaos happens or bad stuff happens. So the captain of this boat hops in and he says, let's go to the most socially, culturally uncomfortable places we could possibly go. Let's go lose control. And they go. They're not there yet, so they're anticipating how awkward, how weird this is going to be. And they're probably already wondering this question that Luke, if you'd read the whole gospel before and after, has been playing with. Who is this? What's he like? 
And why are we going to this place? So again, this is the best it gets this night. This is the best it gets, and then things start to spiral a little bit more out of control um, after the sunshine goes away and the blue sky disappears. But a quick side application before that. Here's an example of what I mean of it can get uncomfortable and feels like you're losing control even in the best of moments walking with Jesus. Here's a, here's a simple application. Jesus might say, let's go to the other side of the room after a large group tonight and talk to people you never talk to. He might say that. And you're like, man, sunny day, life's great. All those examples Ben gave at the beginning of his little message about school, about moving away, none of them apply to me. This is an awesome semester. I got one class. I'm sitting pretty right now. But then you hear that. And Jesus calls you outside of what feels safe and home and comfortable and normal and predictable and controllable. And he calls you to lose control for the sake of love, for the sake of following him, for the sake of being with him. And you feel, oh, I don't, want to, I don't know about that. Even in minor ways with Jesus, we, feel, we can feel like we're losing control or, or, or things are spiraling out of control into a situation that's above our pay grade where it produces some anxiety and it makes us start to wonder, wait a second, who is this? Who is he? And what is he really like? So, enough about that. They get in the boat and they go, and they're on their way there, and things start to get worse, and maybe a little um, hint that things are gonna get worse is Jesus starts sleeping. He's a fully human just like us. He's fully God, and he's fully human. So he's been tired probably from a really long day. Whatever they're gonna go do on the other side of the lake, he needs to be a little better rested for, so he falls asleep. And these um, experienced sailors are kind of piloting the boat over there and they start to see these storm clouds pop up over the horizon and maybe they just make a mental note of it and they keep an eye on the weather and like huh i wonder i wonder if this is the beginning of a storm or just kind of something passing through but the but the clouds get bigger and they get bigger fast um when we were over there a couple of years ago um they were explaining to us kind of the, I don't know what you'd call it, the aerodynamics of the Sea of Galilee. There's mountains on either side of it, so it's like a wind tunnel. And the way that, I don't know, the clouds get warmed and storms form is they form really fast. It's easy to get stranded out in the middle of this massive lake with these squalls, which is exactly what Luke said happened. As he fell asleep, a squall, or Matthew says in his gospel, a furious storm came down on the lake came down from the mountains on the lake and sat there and produces this just wind tunnel, which all of these people knew friends, knew family who went out on the lake, storms came and they never came back because their boats capsized. And this is before the age where every little kid got swim lessons. So you go down with the ship. So they're beginning to um, freak out. And again, these are like deadliest catch seasoned sailors. They grew up on this lake. They knew this lake. They knew how to operate a boat. And they're terrified. It's one thing if one of us was on that boat and scared. It's another thing if like the seasoned gritty captain is scared. It's like if you're on a plane, if the flight attendant's getting terrified, you're in big trouble. If you're getting terrified, maybe you don't fly that much. Turbulence scares you. If they're getting terrified, 
Maybe time to pray. The professionals, the professionals are getting terrified. Lost all control like a cork on the open sea in a perfect storm. And Jesus, though, if he's been aware of it at all, seems to be interpreting the situation quite differently than all the other disciples. He's sleeping like a baby while chaos rages all around him. And this makes the disciples mad. And you don't really see it directly in here, but other gospel accounts add a few more details in here. This is not a polite, Master, if you don't so mind, could you wake up and help us bail out water of our quickly sinking boat? They have to be screaming at the top of their lungs just to be heard. They've got to be just, we're not getting out of this alive. I've never in my life yet been in a situation, I hope I'm never in one, where I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, there's no way out of this. They were in that situation. Terror. And they are screaming at him, wake up. And of course, angry, how could you be sleeping in this? Jesus took the wheel And then he fell asleep at the wheel. Where do you feel like that right now? Jesus took the wheel and then he fell asleep at the wheel. And it feels like you're about to crash or you did crash. There's this great irony that Luke is showing us. Um, I made some, I, I tried to just show this visually Uh, We can pull up that first little slide. This is reality of what's going on in this situation. This is God in the boat with them. This is the creator from Genesis who who separated the waters above from the waters below. This is the God who told Job, I'm the one who told the ocean, go this far and no further. I'm the one who created shorelines and countries. I'm the one who commands everything. This is the God who Paul says all things hold together by the word of his power. This is the one who orders every molecule of creation and it obeys immediately. And he's on the boat with them. So in reality, God is near and present and in control and God is calm. Jesus is asleep as calm as a baby, not freaking out, not frantic, not afraid, because he's in perfect alignment with reality. He knows who he is. These waves, they're my friends, I made them. All these little molecules of water obey my every whim and my every word. But they're frantic and fearful, and here's the reason why, the next slide. This is our perception of reality oftentimes. We're frantic and fearful because we think God's asleep. Because we think he's asleep at the wheel in some of the most consequential moments of our lives. Stuff that's really going to mess us up if it goes wrong. Or if the train falls off the tracks. So often the source of our fear or our frenzy or our hurry or our hyper control have to be in control of every little detail is owing to the fact that deep down we believe That though Jesus might be near, like I hear all these things at church, or RUF, or I read all these books, or my parents raised me to believe God is in control. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. 
Though the mountains give way and fall into the heart of the sea, the Lord is my strength. Yeah, but what good does that mean if your strength, if your strong tower, if your refuge, if your ever-present help is gone, is asleep? Get it? That's why we get afraid. Fear is a great tool. Fear, is, fear can be a friend. Because fear, fear can be the little red flag in your life, and anxiety can be the little red flag in your life that says, this is a place that you think God's asleep and you're bailing the water of your life out because you think you're sinking, and he could care less. Fear is a great flag that opens our eyes to those things. And Luke is drawing, Luke is drawing irony between who's really asleep on this boat and who's really awake. See it? Jesus might be, Jesus might be napping He's perfectly in tune with what's going on, and he's the only one who can do anything about what's going on, the only one who can bring any peace or calm here, the only one stronger than the circumstance. He's as awake as it gets, and he's paying careful attention to their situation, and they're as asleep as it gets. You're supposed to be just marvel at the fact that they're literally in the presence of this God, losing their minds because they think he's of no help because he really doesn't care. The God who is perfectly in control and who perfectly loves you sometimes steers you into storms so that you can see you're sleeping, so that you can learn that he actually is paying attention, that he actually is awake, that he actually is in control. Oftentimes, he will steer you into situations where you lose control to show you you were never in control and you didn't need to be because you have him and he is and he loves you and he's stronger than your circumstance because all the raw material that created your circumstance he made he controls he orders he ordains. So this is, this is the hard part about life with God is that he, sometimes he takes the wheel and sometimes he seems and does steer into oncoming traffic. And it's a white-knuckled ride. But he has bigger purposes. Jesus asks a question after he does this, and I love how Luke doesn't, here's one reason you know the Bible is true and not just written by people trying to kind of like hype you up and inspire you to be religious. The Bible never pays attention to all the details that Hollywood producers would make the whole movie about. Jesus does miracles, there's almost no attention on the actual performance of the miracle. It's just like, yeah, and he healed the guy and he got up and walked. And you're like, wait, wait, let's go back. What did it look like? Did he say like magic words before? Did he wave his arms? Tell me more about that. With this, Jesus just says, hey, chill out. No, Luke is uninterested in the rest of what happens after that. He just moves on. Oh, by the way, the winds stopped immediately. The waves stopped immediately. And then he moves on to what's actually important. I love how he just skips over the details that we're like, tell me more. He's like, no, that's not the point of the story. The magic trick's not the point. The point is that Jesus has a question. Maybe he's still groggy. <laughs> he's waking up and he's like, hey, where's your faith? 
Did you forget who's on the boat? Did you forget who your Lord is? Your Lord is the one who made and controls the circumstances you're in right now that are howling like the wind, that you feel like are sinking you, or gonna do you in. He does this, he steers us into these things. He steers us out of control that we might see him for who he is and that he's in control. In other words, to deepen your tiny faith, to strengthen your weak faith. You want to know how does my faith grow stronger? Well, there's a lot of ways. You know, you, your faith can grow a lot clearer and a lot stronger by listening to the word of God, getting it inside of you by praying, by spending time with other Christians, helping them kind of help you connect the dots or illumine your mind. But in, in real life, one of the places the Lord strengthens your faith the most is in the trenches of your everyday life, the unscripted stuff that just comes at you. That's where he deepens your faith and introduces you to who he really is and what he's really like. This sermon series, I'm well aware that this will, the Spirit will use His Word um, to marginally, gradually grow your faith and help correct the record of what God really is like, but you know where He's going to put you in the master's class? You know where the PhD and the character of my good Father is going to come from? Suffering, discipline, tests, trials. It's throughout the Scriptures. God puts His cards on the table ahead of time. He says, this this is the PhD course. You want to really know me? I want you to really know me. I'm going to help you really know me. But this is where that's going to happen. Trials of various kinds. Storms of various kinds. Where you realize, I'm sleepwalking my way through this life. I'm sleepwalking my way with Jesus. And these trials wake you up. They don't wake God up. They wake you up. They wake me up to who he really is and what's really going on. And the benefit is, on the other side of these storms and on the other side of trials and sufferings for the Christian, you don't just leave with stronger faith. You leave with a bigger God. And if God is the best and most beautiful and most lovely and most alive thing that exists, um, if you leave with more of him, what better outcome could there possibly be? This is why we really mature Christians pray things like, Lord, if suffering opens my eyes wider to you, I would rather have that than a myopic view of you. I would rather be fully awake to you than have a groggy, half-eyed, open vision of you. Do whatever it takes. People who have really begun to see God in his beauty and his loveliness and his care and his glory become addicted to him. I want more of you. I want to see more. I want to know more. That every season of my life that I can look back on and I would describe as a furious storm where I lost my bearings, I didn't know which way was up, and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm not getting through this intact. I look back on and absolutely exited those storms with a bigger Jesus than I entered those storms with. 
and with a more confident faith. And that's why I would not love to live through those experiences again. But it's why you hear people say, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So those two years of spiritual depression, a few years after I became a Christian, when I doubted every minute of every day that I was a Christian, that the gospel would apply to someone like me, one step forward, five steps back, that's a season that I would say I wouldn't trade it for the world. I was in a storm, and I was asleep to the way God really is, and I was asleep to who he really was, and he was so kind to nudge me awake to more of who he is. Those agonizing anxieties that popped up on and off through my four years of seminary in those years, I wouldn't want to ever relive that. I really wouldn't, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because I know my God so much better because of the storms that he steered me into. OCD and intrusive thoughts, thoughts I couldn't shake, thoughts that wouldn't leave me alone. I never want to have those again, but I don't regret that it happened. I wouldn't call them good, but I would call them necessary to the, to the, to the larger degree of calmness and confidence that I get to have in present trials. Not that I've arrived, not that I know it all now, not that it's all smooth sailing, absolutely not. But is there more calmness, more contentment in the moments when I lose control? When Jesus takes the wheel, am I a little bit less frenzied and frantic when he starts to drive off the road? There's a little bit more, little bit more of me up for the journey now. Watchman Nee, I've never read him. I've just seen his quotes appear pretty much everywhere. But he's an author, kind of a poetic author, and he says, God will answer all of our questions, and I would add to it all of our fears. He will answer all of your fears in one way and one way only, by showing you more of his son. Some of your questions, why, Lord? Like the psalmist, wake up. Where are you? Why does it have to be this way? Why am I still here? Why are you driving? Why did you take a turn down this road? I don't want to be here. Some of his answers to those questions will not be, well, here's the seven-point reason why. If you, if you think about it this way, this had to happen and this had to happen. What if he just shows you more of himself and that's his answer? So that you could see me and know me and experience more of me. Our most out-of-control experiences in life will bring about our closest encounters with who this God really is and what is really like. It's interesting, after Jesus tells the sea and the wind to peace be still, and then he moves on, um, he moves on to begin to address his disciples, and it's the first time in the passage that the word fear appears. I find that interesting. I think Luke was being strategic. I think he was trying to push across a point that only fear can conquer fear, as it's been said. The more impressed you are with the dimensions and the magnitude of your God, the less impressed you'll be with the dimensions and the magnitude of the fears and the threats and the circumstances that you face. Your fear of him will evaporate your fears of circumstances. It won't make them go away. I didn't say that it'll radically change your relationship with your circumstances, particularly the scary ones, the daunting ones. You'll be so overwhelmed with who's on the boat with you that these circumstances, you'll begin to feel a boldness in yourself. 
what can, like the psalmist said, what can, what can man do to me? I always like to point out with that psalm, well, man can kill you, man can corner you in a cave with an army waiting at the opening to the cave, man can slander you, people can ruin your life and take your reputation, people can kill you, man can do a lot to you, but do you see how the, his perspective had changed, his fears had shifted? I have God, what can you do to me? Your fears shift when you really get to know him. So friends, as we end, Jesus is not asleep in your circumstance, but he's waking you up, usually with a very good teacher called fear. He's waking you up to the places that you're asleep to him, ever so gently nudging you out of your stupor and saying, hey, hey, I'm on board. I'm on board. And that's the source of our calm. Now I want to end this uh, not just because this is what, this is what preachers do. Well, we got to end with Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus for 30 minutes now. We're not ending with Jesus. He's been the entire substance of this. But I want you to see, how do you know that you can trust him in these out-of-control moments? How do you know that you can trust Jesus to take the wheel? Here's how. This is the logic of the gospel. This is how the gospel writers help us understand and have confidence in his love for his people and for his enemies who are not yet his people, but that he calls to himself to repent and to believe and to run to him. This is the logic of the gospel. Um, he, would, he would say to you, look at the one moment in Jesus's life when he could have used his control and his power to save himself. And look at what he did in that moment. The circumstances that you're in, the storm that they're in, is a walk in the park compared to what this Jesus knew stared him down every conscious day of his life as he chooses to walk himself into this just satanic, hellish hurricane of redeeming and liberating his people from guilt and shame and death and sin and condemnation and slavery to sin and every day, he, he even said this, he said, you, don't you know I could call a legion of angels and spare myself from this? Don't you know that I could, I could steer out of oncoming traffic and save myself? And yet he chooses to steer himself into that oncoming freight train to protect you, his people. So Paul would say, if he did that in that situation, why wouldn't he do that for you in all the little situations and circumstances that we get in? If when all the cards were stacked against him, that's how he used his power for his people, what about the situations where it's really not that big of a deal? If you don't know this Jesus, you have seen him week after week after week. If you don't know this God, you have seen him portrayed. You have seen him introduce you to yourself, say, hey, I want you to remember, I'm like this. I'm patient, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, I'm good, I'm merciful, I'm holy. Friends, pay attention. Let him wake you up. And if you're asleep, cry out that he would wake you up, that you might see him and flee to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that's my prayer. Wake us up. You are our pilot. You captain our lives. 
You are on board with these stories that you've written for us. You are steering us sometimes into sunny days and calm waters and other days into turbulent storms. I pray that we would know deep down by faith that on the sunny days and the stormy days, you are good, you are love, you are in control. We pray this in your name. Amen.